just completed observing the Passover, the Days of Unleavened Bread, and we all understand the sacrifice that God gave His Son to pay for the penalty of our sins, that He shed His blood that we might be forgiven. Many in the world take that for granted, and they take it as grace for license to do whatever they want, contrary to the Ten Commandments. Many in the world reject God and the Bible, but even God has a plan for them. And they may not know it, but if they continue in their current state, they may end up in the last great day, and uh, they will have an opportunity for salvation at that time after they've learned some hard, painful lessons over a period of time. Many professing Christians understand the sacrifice of Christ, but they don't understand God's master plan. They think that's all there is to it. You just accept Christ, accept his sacrifice, and once saved, always saved. You don't have to worry about a thing uh, after this. But it's only through God's annual festivals and holy days that we have a master plan which we understand. We have a booklet uh, given to us by Dr. Meredith called uh, The Holy Days, God's Master Plan. The world doesn't know that master plan, but we are privileged and blessed to observe all seven festivals and seven holy days throughout the season and understand God's master plan. So in this sermon today, I want to cover the big picture of God's master plan and ask what is the purpose of life? What is God doing here on earth? What is his purpose? And we'll review that master plan as revealed in the holy days and in the festivals. The first festival, and it's not a holy day, is the Passover, which we observed a couple weeks ago. And we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. You might turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans Romans 5. Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, God died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, there are heroes who will give their lives for a buddy in the military conflict or a parent who will try to save his drowning daughter or son in the ocean and be willing to give his life. But Christ gave himself for sinners, not just for good people. Much more than having been justified by his blood, verse 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here is the second step in God's plan. We shall be saved by his life. Professing Christians don't understand that second step and the third and the fourth and the fifth step in God's master plan. The title of the sermon, by the way, is God's Master Plan. Once we're reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, and that's an ongoing process. We had uh, Rod McNair's sermon some time ago, Are You Saved? 
We have been saved from our past sins. We are now being saved, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 15. And we shall be saved. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, verse 13. And right here, we shall be saved by His life. It's an ongoing process, and we will ultimately be saved. And the world doesn't understand what real salvation is. So the first step in God's plan is the Passover. The second step is the Days of Unleavened Bread, pictured by the Exodus. We must be delivered from the bondage of sin. might turn there right across the page. Actually, I should have stayed there. Romans 6 and verse 16. We understood that we have been delivered from the bondage to sin. Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. So we've been freed from the bondage of sin. And you know even the Ten Commandments. Those of you who have memorized the long form of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Eternal, your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So God has brought us, brought us out of the bondage to sin. But we have our part in God's plan. We must be overcomers. We realize in 1 Corinthians 5 that we need to replace the leaven of malice and wickedness with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We must transform from human nature to divine nature. We overcome self, Satan, and society. We need to replace human nature with God's divine nature, and he's doing that. He is the master potter. We are the clay, and he's creating in us his perfect righteous character to the degree we cooperate and desire him to do that. The Days of Unleavened Bread reveal our part in God's plan. Then we have Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, the New Testament Church, the Body of Christ, the Israel of God was formed on Pentecost. The Israel of God is Galatians 6 and verse 16. We'll be observing Pentecost just five weeks from tomorrow on May 20th, 2018. And God poured out His Holy Spirit. And it's the power of creation. It's the power of life. the power of the resurrection. And so God begat His people through the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we are the first fruits of His master plan. Then the first day of the seventh month is the Feast of Trumpets. Revelation 11.15 announces the greatest event in history. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's the announcement. But the Feast of Trumpets also portrays seven trumpets, the one-year day of the Lord that consists of those seven trumpet plagues, And then, of course, the seventh trumpet also consists of the seven last plagues or the seven last bowls. So we have a wonderful trumpet that blows the seventh trumpet. 
That's the time of the first resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Uh, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And we will be changed at the last trumpet. That's the seventh trumpet in which God's family will be born as immortal, glorified children of God. That's a wonderful feast that we're looking forward to and the reality when that trumpet blows. Then we have the Day of Atonement, the banishment and incarceration of Satan the devil for a thousand years. Uh, That's the tenth day of the seventh month. It also is a jubilee announcement. You read back in, um, well, you might just turn there, Leviticus 25 and verse 10 and uh, verse 9. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh trumpet. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And this is the inscription on the Liberty Bell and uh, the Liberty Building there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. And when we come out of the world, we actually participate in that liberty, as Jesus said in John 8:32. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But the Day of Atonement and upcoming prophecy will also announce the second exodus, when those who have been in captivity will start their trek back to the, the Holy Land. And that's also mentioned in uh, Isaiah, the 11th chapter, as well. Then we come to the Feast of Tabernacles, picturing the time when Christ will rule for a thousand years over all the nations of the world, and the saints will serve as kings and priests, and we will look forward to that time of world peace and prosperity. And the will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And uh, so we will keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and as uh, Mr. Weston announced in the, in the announcements, uh, registration for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, is tomorrow for the 2018 Feast of Tabernacles. So it will be a time when all the nations will really learn God's way of life and we'll be teaching them. Then we come to the last great day, and that's in Revelation 20, verse 11, verses 11 through 13. You might just turn there to look at the one of the most awesome truths in the Bible and in God's master plan. Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom the face, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Well, if they're dead, now standing before God, then it's a resurrection. This is the second general resurrection. It says in verse 5, the rest of the dead did not live again till the thousand years were finished. And another book was open, Revelation 20, verse 12. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the books were open, as the Greek is biblia, biblia, the plural form of book, books, the Bible. And dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead 
were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. So when you read through Matthew 10, 11, and 12, uh, you find various people, such as, I just, I won't turn there, but Matthew 10, uh, verse 15 says, Assuredly, I say to you, for those cities Jesus was uh, upbraiding because they weren't responding to the Messiah, I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you. So even Sodom and Gomorrah will have their opportunity for salvation. Their last memory will be the pain and suffering of their burning flesh when the fire and brimstone rained down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. They'll be more teachable. They may then accept the sacrifice of Christ. Mr. Wetson's uh, booklet, John 3.16, uh, Hidden Truths of the Golden Verse. I hope all of you have read all of uh, the booklet, John 3.16. But chapter 3 is titled, Is God Fair? And when you, as I challenged people on the telecast here recently, uh, go ask your priest or your minister, what will happen if the priest or minister didn't get to the natives in that remote jungle area, and they never heard the name of Christ. What will happen to them when they die? Ask your minister or your priest, and you'll be shocked at their answer. They have to, they will have to say, according to the immortal soul doctrine, that they are burning in hell. They are burning in torment and in fire, because there's no other name under heaven by which you may be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12. And since they didn't hear that name, They're not saved. And since they have an immortal soul, they've got to go somewhere. If they're not going to heaven, then they've got to go to this burning hell. Well, all that is a myth, of course. We thank God for the truth. And there are people in agony who believe that their relatives are being tormented now in some kind of fire under the earth because they were not saved. We thank God for the last great day. God has a 7,000-year plan He's given to human beings, and that plan requires free moral agency. Turn to Deuteronomy, the 30th chapter. It requires that human beings choose, because God has a way of creating human beings in His character. He cannot create them as robots. They have to come to a place in their lives where they choose the right way of life and make it habit and make it eternal character. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. One-third of the angels followed Lucifer because they rebelled. They chose the wrong way. The other two-thirds of the angels remained faithful, and they are ministering spirits to those who are heirs of salvation, it tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. So God gives us free moral agency, but he tells us that we need to choose. We need to choose life. That's God's plan, and that has that 7,000-year plan, and he's called us to be a part of his royal family in that plan. 
Mr. John O'Gwen uh, wrote the Tomorrow's World Bible Study Course in Lessons 13 through 16 are the Sabbath and the Holy Days. And uh, I think Mr. Dexter Wakefield referred to this in a sermon a few weeks ago on Jonah uh, versus Nineveh. Uh, Mr. O'Gwyn characterizes the three seasons as follows. Passover season, God's people made innocent. Pentecost season, God's people made holy. The fall festivals, God's people enter into glory. And that's something we're all looking forward to, I'm sure. So to summarize, God's annual holy days and festivals reveal God's master plan of salvation. Next, what is God's purpose? Why did he create human beings? What is the ultimate purpose of life and for human beings? I have a cartoon here. I normally read the uh, comic strips. I think most of you know, and some of the old-timers may be familiar with this comic strip, Beetle Bailey. Beetle Bailey is a a private in the army. And he has a friend in the uh, barracks named Plato. Plato is also a private in the army. But Plato is a thinker. So Beetle, Beetle Bailey says, what are you thinking about, Plato? And Plato said, so many things like, what is the meaning of life? At least Plato's thinking. How big is the universe? Is there life on other planets? Where is God? Why do we pronounce yacht, Y-A-C-H-T, yacht? Can there be nothing without something? How many angels can sit on the head of a pin? Why do we have an appendix? Why is every snowflake different? Why? How? What? And two lovely secretaries working in the office there, talking to one another, and they said, talking to each other and say, did you ever go out with Plato? The other secretary said, no, he's boring. He just keeps asking questions. But God wants us to ask questions, and we as God's people, not because we are any better, have the privilege of understanding the deep things of God, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 and 9. God has given us understanding of the deep things of God. And what an awesome blessing that is. Our spiritual life begins at baptism. Why are we here? Peter said, repent and be baptized and uh, for the remission of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.38. That begins our spiritual life. If you turn to James, the first chapter, James 1, we understand this. Awesome process that is very plain and understandable through the analogy of human procreation and human begettal and human birth and human reproduction. James 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God's character is predictable. He has integrity. He's love. He's immutable, unchangeable in his character. Verse 18 is a key verse. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
Now, the new King James waters that down somewhat. The, the King James Version, it says, of his own will, he begat us with the word of truth. When we receive God's Holy Spirit, it's the spirit of truth. And God has begotten us as his children when we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit combines with the spirit in man. We now become a begotten child of God. We know in John 3.16 it says that God gave his only begotten son. But the difference is that Jesus was begotten before his human birth. He's the only begotten son begotten before his human birth. All of us are begotten after our human birth, but we are begotten by God's Holy Spirit. Of his only will begat he us with a word of truth that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures or his creation. Well, you know these scriptures, but let's turn back to Genesis 1 and verse 26 to understand what is God doing all these human beings. He describes the creation of the flora and, and uh, fauna of animals and plants in the preceding verses. But then in Genesis 1, verse 26, Then God said, and God, the Hebrew word, is Elohim, Let us, not me, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. He's talking about image and likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God created him, created, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said of them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue us. So God has a purpose. And as uh, Mr. Jacob Hall said in the sermonette, uh, God made us in his image. He made us in the image of God. Well, this is, Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we understand the attributes of God. So we become begotten children. When he created human beings, he put in them the spirit of man. And as Dr. Meredith would explain, he gave them creative imagination. And we have that difference, that distinction between animals and humans. No animal has a spirit in man, as the Apostle Paul described there in 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. But now John, the third chapter, John 3, which the world, the professing Protestant world, has a misunderstanding. When Nicodemus came to Jesus and, at night, <clears throat> Jesus told him in John chapter 3, verse 3, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. <coughs> Nicodemus said, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, John 3, verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And it seems that Protestants can't get that through their minds. They'd understand the difference between begettle, of being a begotten child of God, and being born again. And we'll explain how Jesus was born again. 
He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So how was Jesus born? You might, uh, of course, look across the page. It's chapter 316, the golden verse of the Bible. And verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. How was Jesus born into the kingdom of God? If we're going to be born into the kingdom, if we're going to become a spirit, how was He born? Romans, the first chapter, at verse 4. Romans 1, sorry, Romans the first chapter. Well, breaking into the thought, starting with verse 3, Romans 1, verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, how? according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Christ set the pattern. He is the firstborn of many brethren. How was he born? By a resurrection from the dead. So we as begotten children, we be born again. Then that which is born of the spirit will be spirit. When we're resurrected at the seventh trumpet, those who are in the first resurrection. Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 29. Again, gives us that transformation in the purpose of life, that we are to be born into the divine, immortal, spirit, family of God. Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Conformed to the image of his Son. That means to have the very character, the mind, the nature of Christ. The Apostle Paul said, and I think it was Philippians 2, uh, we have the mind of Christ. And we need to have that same kind of attitude that he had in Philippians 2.5, that of a servant. We need to have his character, spiritual character, be conformed to the image of his Son, his nature, his character, that we might be the, he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So God has a purpose, and that purpose is that he is creating a family, a divine family into which we can be born. And the process is that we must grow in godly character. Dr. Meredith wrote the book which explains so much of this in Your Ultimate Destiny. And he writes on page 20, if I can find it here, God's plan is to bring more full sons of God into his family so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. All this was predestinated, willed by the mind of God, quote, before the foundation of the world, end of quote, Ephesians 1, verse 4. So in the terms of the will of God, we who overcome are already eternal, have already been given the gift of eternal life through the immutable will of God. 
Well, that may be shocking to some of you, but uh, it really points out in 1 John 5, I won't turn there, verses 11 and 12, talking about the witness of eternal life, that he who has the Son has life, and he that has, does not have the Son of God has not life. And that's a testimony to eternal life, 1 John 5, verse 11. God's plan is to bring more full sons of God into his family. So we look forward to that time. Mr. Armstrong and Dr. Meredith use the same phraseology. In four words, what is God doing? What is his purpose? And this is shocking to the rest of the world because it doesn't sound, it sounds too presumptuous. In four words, what is God doing? God is reproducing himself. And that's at least eight or nine times in the uh, class I'm teaching, Introduction to Biblical Doctrines, using Mr. Armstrong's booklet, uh, book, um, The Mystery of the Ages. He uses that expression at least eight or nine times. Uh, Dr. Meredith uh, does also, if I can find it here, uh, page 7. Page 7 of Your Ultimate Destiny. The truly awesome purpose of human existence goes far beyond even what the righteous angels and archangels will experience. Why do we go through trials? Why are we tested time and again? God wants to see if we are willing to totally surrender to him. His ultimate purpose is to reproduce in us his mind his love, and his character. God is reproducing himself. It's on page 7 of uh, Your Ultimate Destiny. Uh, Dr. Scott Winnell gave the Bible study this last uh, Wednesday night in Charlotte, The Family and God's Plan. In part one, he titled, Why Did God Create Mankind? And in the Bible study, Dr. Scott Winnell quoted from Mr. Armstrong's book, the Incredible Human Potential, I believe that's page 52 in the hard copy and page uh, 53 in the paperback edition, The Incredible Human Potential. Quote, God thus purposed to reproduce himself through humans made in his image and likeness, but made first from material flesh and blood, subject to death, if there is sin unrepented of, yet with the possibility of being born into the divine family, begotten by God the Father. God saw how this could be done through Christ, who gave himself for that purpose. So that's from The Incredible Human Potential by Mr. Armstrong, page 52 in the hard copy, and I think page 53 in the paperback issue. So turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. Again, brethren, this is just awesome truth. And you and I have that understanding. Remember, Jesus prayed to the Father and said, I thank you, Father, that you have not revealed these things to the noble, but to babes. Yes, we understand deep truths of God. And yet, the worldly noble, very few of them are called and very few of them understand. Ephesians, the third chapter. Here again, God reveals his plan for family. 
Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, our former association rejected the old idea that God is creating a family. And yet, when you have God as the Father and a Son, Jesus, what do you have? You have a family. He says in verse 15, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. God is creating a divine family, and we are privileged to participate in that awesome master plan. Well, and Jesus said in Mark 3, verse 34, 35, when his mother and brothers and sisters were visiting, and he said, Who are my mother? Who is my mother and my brothers? Mark 3, verse 35, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What an awesome relationship God is inviting us to become a part of. And even that Jesus would say that, you know, the woman that does the will of my father is my mother. That's an awesome relationship that he's giving to us. But how do we become part of that family? What is the process? The process is overcoming daily. We have to grow in the process of overcoming human nature and replacing it with the divine nature. Romans, the 12th chapter, gives a, there's so many scriptures, but we'll use just Romans 12. Romans 12.1 I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So that's the process. We grow daily. We are in a process of transformation from carnality to spirituality. And we must be spiritually minded, as uh, the Apostle Paul said back in Romans 7. I didn't have, the, have that in my notes, but he said to be spiritually minded is life, but to be carnally minded is death. That's Romans 8 and verse 6. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans 8, 7. And every uh, one here should know that verse because it tells you what you are, what your nature is like, unless you repent and ask God to change your nature. Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, or hostile, as some of the other translations have it. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Well, you're in the flesh. Well, he clarifies that in verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone have not the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So we see during the days of unleavened bread, in spite of trials, that we must be overcomers. And Romans 8 and verse 37 gives us this encouraging statement about overcoming. Romans 8, 
in verse 37, in spite of all the trials we experience, Romans 8, 37, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Mr. Weston quoted that in a recent uh, co-worker letter or one of his articles, I believe. Well, let's turn to one of the most important scriptures. There are many, but this is extremely important. It has to do with your salvation. Romans, uh, Philippians 2 and verse 12. Philippians 2 and verse 12. This is a part of God's master plan. Philippians 2 and verse 12. The previous verse, it mentions the confession that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We're talking about salvation. Work out your own salvation, how? With fear and trembling. As uh, Dr. Meredith would often uh, mention that those uh, leaders in the Worldwide Church of God uh, who were prominent leaders. Uh, they were gave some sometimes inspiring sermons, but they went off base. Why? They did not have the fear of God, and they were not conquered by God. And every single one of us has got to come to the point where he or she trembles before the God of heaven. When you realize who and what you are in comparison... I won't go through all that, but I think you know Isaiah, the 40th chapter, where God is talking about His creation and all the nations. Nations combined are only a drop in a bucket. The comparison to God. He said, you worm Jacob. (laughs) But we are more than worms. And not just glowing words, as Winston Churchill said, we are God's begotten children. We are very special. He's called us to that special calling. But he said you've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Is that salvation by works? He explains in the next verse. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and do of his good pleasure. So you have your part in God's plan, and your part, to a great degree, is relying on God the Father and Christ to work in you. The NIV Study Bible makes this comment regarding Philippians 2, verse 12. Work it out to the finish, not a reference to the attempt to earn one's salvation by works, but merely the expression of one's salvation in spiritual growth and development. Salvation is not merely a gift received once for all, as many Protestants believe. It expresses itself in an ongoing process in which the believer is strenuously involved the process of perseverance, spiritual growth, and maturation or maturing. So 
we have that awesome blessing that we do have our part, but it, that wonderful promise in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Some of us have been weak-willed. We don't have enough uh, gumption, backbone. As we were talking the other day at lunch, it seems that sometime when uh, a husband leaves the church, the, the wife automatically leaves with him. Uh, she didn't have enough backbone uh, to stick up for the truth, and vice versa. Sometimes the, uh, the other is true as well. The wife leaves, and the husband doesn't have enough backbone. He's weak-willed. He hasn't made that commitment. And, of course, at the Passover... Uh, we we do not uh, renew the covenant. That covenant was made um, at the Passover, and when our individual baptism, we agreed to the covenant. But at the Passover, we renew our commitment. We renew our determination and dedication. Persevere unto the end. Those who endure to the end shall be saved. So you know the cartoon of, about children. Uh, God isn't finished with me yet. We are all a work in progress. But we are God's work of art. Turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. Ephesians 2, rather. Ephesians 2, the common verse that Protestants use. But it is not a, <laughs> it is not a Protestant verse. It is God's holy inspired word. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. They ignore the word faith in the verse and say we're, we're saved by grace. No, not only by grace, but it's by the faith of Christ, as we know in Galatians 2 and verse 20. It's the faith of Christ, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. The Greek is poema. Like we are his work of art. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we thank God that this is the process that God is working in us for good works. And we know Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I know that's helped me, and I'm sure it's helped you in so many occasions and, and trials. Turn to Second Peter, in the first chapter. Again, these are scriptures I've given you to before and emphasized. But yet, in the master plan that God has of creating in us his character, replacing human nature with divine nature, it's a process. It takes time. It takes a lifetime. And I uh, kidded Mr. Partian when he was here and lived to 94 years of age. And I was reading that scripture in Second Peter where it talks about uh, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, as I was saying, God has let me live a long, longer life because I have still have other things to overcome. And I hope he gives me a few more years because there's, well, I won't share it with you, but I've got a lot to overcome. 
And Mr. Party and I said, oh, you, you mean that I have to overcome some of this? You are overcoming right to the very last breath uh, when you're, you're living. You're, but you, the basis of that is letting God create in you his divine nature, just as it says here in Second Peter 1 and verse 2. Second Peter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. You know, we have the mind of God. He's shown us his way of life, his way of love, his way of giving, sharing, helping, serving. By that divine power, verse 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But we need to partake of that divine nature. Second Peter 3.18, you know, by heart. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. But how do we grow? We grow by doing the work of God. And some of the churches of God people have forgotten that. They're more of a social club, or they may be doing good works to a certain degree. But Jesus said in John 4.34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. We, as a living church of God, know that we have a great commission to perform, to preach the gospel to all the world, and the full counsel of God, and to preach the true name of Jesus Christ, because there are people out there following a false Christianity, a deceitful Christ, a false apostles and false uh, preachers. So how do we grow? We grow by doing the work of God. And that growth requires also as Jesus said, Matthew 5:48, Become you therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That sounds impossible. What kind of perfection is he talking about? He's talking about the perfection of God's character. But what is God's character? 1 John 4, verse 8. 1 John 4, verse 16. God is perfect. Love. And so we must become love as well. And we must come perfect in that love. And that's the fruit, the first fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't read that. I purposely avoided that in reading Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses six through ten. But what does it say in Romans 5 5? I mean, Romans. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's given to us. So God gives us His divine love as a gift through the Holy Spirit. And we can become love. But it takes a lifetime to do that. And we're in that process. We thank God for that process. Dr. Meredith writes in the Your Ultimate Destiny, again, page 20. The ultimate reality is God's will. God had already willed that Abraham was to be a father of many nations. 
So in God's mind, it was a fact because God had willed it so. In like manner, God must have planned from the beginning to reproduce himself. And he quotes Ephesians 1 verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love. Ephesians 1 verse 4. Again, then he quotes Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see in summary that God has this wonderful master plan that we're going to be ruling with him, with Christ, as the bride of Christ, as born-again children of God. We are now begotten sons and daughters of the Almighty. We are now a family of God. We are now the Israel of God, the spiritual Israel of God. God is creating a royal divine family. So Dr. Meredith and Mr. Herbert Armstrong plainly stated it in four words, God's purpose. God is reproducing himself. Next question. When did God decide on his master plan? Was it after Lucifer and his angels rebelled? Or was it before that? Let's turn to Job, the 38th chapter. Uh, Dr. Scott Winnell referred to this in his Bible study, and I thought, oh, well, I guess Dr. Scott uh, read all my sermon notes from last week, but uh, encouraging it says in 1 Corinthians 1 that we all speak the same thing. So that was very encouraging. Uh, Job, 38th chapter. And, of course, God is speaking to Job out of the whirlwind here. Job 38, verse 4. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. (laughs) Well, where were you? Where was was I? We weren't here. Job wasn't in existence. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstones? Job must have been somewhat of an engineer, an architect, because uh, he would have identified with those challenging questions. When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So here we have a plain indication, the morning stars being the angels of God. The angelic realm already existed before the earth was created, before the physical universe was created. So we find in time sequence, the angels were created first before uh, the physical universe. I've been following the question of why the universe for, for some time. But let's take a look at some other scriptures about when the universe was created. Or 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7, again, Dr. Scott referred to this in his Bible study, and hope you'll be able to join the Wednesday night Bible study this coming Wednesday online. 
2 Timothy 1. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and a love and a sound mind. That's not the scripture I was looking for. But uh... Okay, verse 9. Thank you. But he goes on to say in verse 8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God. We all go through trials in our growth in godly character. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. You know, again, uh, we've been saved from our past sins. We are now being saved, and he that endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. When did God purpose this master plan of salvation? Before the universe existed. Because the time began. When did time begin? Time began with the creation of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1 and verse 1. Notice what it says according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus. So he knew the plan of salvation before the earth existed. And how did he know that? Because what we read in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, that the only way he was going to create human beings to become a part of his God, divine family, and to be born into that family was by free moral agency. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. The only way that we can develop godly character is because we resist evil and we choose good and we practice good. We practice the way of life he's been taught. So you have that before time began. Titus also tells us the same thing. Titus Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. What an awesome plan God had. So, We just thank God that he knows what he's doing. I think I've told you that story before when Dr. C. Paul Meredith uh, back in Pasadena years ago when someone was complaining about some trials and why is God letting me do this? Why is this happening? Dr. C. Paul Meredith said the simple answer, God knows what he's doing. And God knows what he's doing with each and every one of us. He knows every hair on our head. But he also gave us hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. So he created the universe. He created angels and then created the universe 
before human beings. So why does the universe exist? We have a Tomorrow's World telecast, Why the Universe, and one we had just on March 18th, our mysterious universe. What has the universe to do with, with God's master plan? The famous astrophysicist uh, Stephen Hawking has wanted to know the answer to that question. He died March 14th, 2018, at the age of 76. And Stephen Hawking's contributions to quantum mechanics and black holes are well known. He wanted an understanding of the universe. And he wrote in A Brief History of Time, page 13, he wanted to search for a complete unified theory. Uh, my wife and I, along with Dr. Meredith and uh, Dr. Meredith's daughter, Elizabeth Stafford, uh, saw the movie about Stephen Hawking, A Theory of Everything. And uh, quite an amazing movie uh, because at age 26, Stephen Hawking was told uh, that he had only uh, two or three years to live. He had this degenerative disease, which, of course, he ended up being paraplegic, that even had to, later on had a voice box, so totally immobile. His wife, they had three children, and she was amazing in that particular movie, taking care of three children in a paraplegic. Uh, they finally, they divorced, he remarried, she remarried. Uh, but later on, of course, he continued his studies into the universe. Well, years ago, I became interested in his book, A Brief History of Time. And Hawking referred to Edwin Hubble's 1929 observation that Wherever you look, distant galaxies are moving rapidly away from us. In other words, the universe is expanding. Before these studies, back in the 20s and the 30s, there was a theory that the universe has always existed and it's just steady state, maybe it grows and retreats and so forth. But in 1929, Edwin Hubble was an astronomer there in Pasadena at Mount Wilson. And my wife and I and others have uh, toured the uh, uh, planetarium there and the observatory at the top of Mount Wilson. We've also uh, visited the uh, observatory in Kitt Peak, uh, west of, uh, of the, uh, uh, Tucson, Arizona. I've also looked through the telescope at uh, Griffith Observatory uh, there in Southern California. Uh, but what Hubble decided, he saw these plates and he was able to find out, along with a, a fellow astronomer, Hummelson and Slipher, that they couldn't almost believe it, but galaxies were moving out into space. So it's not a steady-state universe. It was a universe in which the galaxies are going out into space. And how fast are they moving? Uh, one of the... Uh, God and the Astronomers by Robert Jastrow wrote on uh, page 12. He said that they found out that the galaxies were moving out into space, and it's hard for us to comprehend, a hundred million miles an hour. I talked with our expert, Mr. Wallace Smith, and he said, well, since then we find objects going out into space, and actually as they go out, they accelerate in speed, and some are going 200 million miles an hour. Where are they going? Is God going to be able to catch up with them? 
Are we going to be able to catch up with them? Stephen Hawking uh, wrote again uh, on the Brief History of Time, page 9. One may say that time had a beginning at the Big Bang in the sense that earlier time simply would not be defined. So again, the universe did have a beginning. And uh, by the way, in this is the latest, uh, not the latest, uh, the next Tomorrow's World magazine, the May-June issue, a feature article by Mr. Gerald Weston, Abortion, the Real Story. And again, this gets back into God's purpose. What is it? He said, we read in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply. Also, there are two articles in here, of course, Dr. Meredith continuing the truth behind the Protestant Reformation, which will be part eight, the last part of that Reformation series. And if you want the last part, part nine, you have to request the booklet. So we'll be creating the booklet on the truth behind the Protestant Reformation by Dr. Roderick Meredith. But also in this same issue, it's an article by uh, Wallace Smith, Black Holes, Leviathans of the Cosmic Deep. And then my commentary, uh, Stephen Hawking and the Universe. So you'll want to see that. Again, God's work is going out. If we're growing, how do you grow? With your heart and God's work. And I hope you support that. By the way, I uh, tuned into uh, El Mundo de Mañana website. And on the website, I thought I would see maybe one of our programs because Mr. Mario Baez does such a wonderful example of uh, lip-syncing, actually, the English into Spanish. So you'll find Mr. Weston and me and Mr. Smith and Rod McNair speaking Spanish. But when I went on the, the Spanish website, I also found a link to Russian. I did... Oh, I've never seen the Russian website before. Go on and clicked onto that, and there's my program on space wars. Uh, it's a voiceover, not limpsync, but in Russian. So anyway, it's amazing. I'm just uh, really thankful that uh, the, the gospel is going out in all these various languages, and hope you pray for it. Although, again, that's, that's an aside, but it's still very important. Humanity's deepest desire for knowledge is justification, Stephen Hawking write, enough to our continuing quest, and our goal is nothing less than the complete description of the universe. So do you know anything about the universe? How many galaxies are there? It used to be said years ago that there were 100 billion galaxies and 100 billion stars or 100 million stars in each galaxy. And now, with the Hubble telescope, they've looked on these black spaces in the universe and found out there are many more galaxies, so that NASA has said we are off by a factor of 10 instead of 200 billion galaxies, as we previous thought. Multiply that 10 times, and there are 2 trillion galaxies. Now, the latest Discover magazine, uh, May 2018, is saying they're actually finding a, a brand-new telescope called the James Webb Space Telescope is going to launch, and they'll be finding out even more galaxies. This is page 65 of the May 2018 Discover magazine. So they're still exploring, looking for even more galaxies. And how many stars 
other in each galaxy. Apparently the Milky Way galaxy uh, has 100 billion stars, and that's just the galaxy in which we live. I don't know if some of you have seen the NASA website, but you can see these awesome, beautiful photos. We've shown them in our telecast of some of the galaxies. The Whirlpool Galaxy is just a, a beautiful galaxy. It's only 30 billion light years away and uh, 60,000 light years across. Then there's the Tadpole Galaxy and the Spiral Galaxy. So you go on the website, and these are awesome, beautiful galaxies. I was just thinking this morning... Now, if there are two trillion galaxies, and let's say at the end of the White Throne Judgment, I'm just throwing out numbers here because I know Mr. Smith had found out a number that how many human beings have ever lived, uh, one estimate was 70 billion. Let's say that 100 billion after the White Throne Judgment are born into God's family, and you inherit the universe, you inherit the galaxies, 100 billion members of the God family inheriting two trillion galaxies, that's 20 galaxies each. So what are you going to do with your 20 galaxies? Anyway, it's the mind expanding. Hebrews 1 and verse 1. How are we going to ever catch up with those galaxies going out into space and they accelerate in speed as they get out further? at 100 million miles an hour, or 200 million miles an hour. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. He's talking about Jesus Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. What he sat down, when he had by himself purged our sins, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than angels, he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The, the phrase all things in the Greek is ta panta. In other words, the definite article the, T-H-E, panta, meaning the all. And as uh, Dr. Meredith brings out in his booklet, that means everything that basically can be seen or heard, uh, that is seen or unseen. So think when you think of our Savior Jesus Christ as a high priest, he's the word that was made flesh. But even now, he at the right hand of God the Father upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's how powerful he is. And we are going to be married to him. We are heirs with Christ, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. You might turn back there to see that in Romans the 8th chapter. So we are going to inherit all things so that those galaxies going out into space, human beings are adventurous. You know, there are 200, over 200,000 people have volunteered for a one-way trip to Mars. 
uh, SpaceX out of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Now they've whittled it down to 100. They're going to uh, whittle it down to 25 more. It takes 259 days to go to Mars, and uh, according to NASA. So uh, these people want a one-way trip to, to Mars. We're going to be at the right hand. We're going to be on the sea of glass. We're not only going to be beyond Mars. We're not only going to be beyond the universe because God is outside of time and space. And Jesus said in prayer to the Father that they may be one just as we are one. When we are born into the family of God and we inherit all things, inherit the universe, we will be able to operate out time, outside of time and space. One time when we were doing the World Tomorrow telecast, we were doing the 20th anniversary of Apollo 11, uh, July 29, 1969, the first landing on the moon. And since then, there have been 12 men that have been on the moon. You just look up at the moon and you ask, well, 12 human beings have walked on the moon. I was doing a rehearsal for the telecast, and uh, behind me was a green screen, and it showed a rocket going off, and I had a monitor in front of me, and I could see I was sitting on a wooden stool. But then the scene changed behind me, and it was the planets moving through the planets. And I'm here I'm looking at this monitor, and I'm on a wooden stool floating through various planets. So I started, I reached out my arm like Superman, and I started, oh, I was floating, flying through all these planets. I'll tell you, it was a thrill. It really, you are going to really love it when you inherit the galaxies, inherit all the universe. It's all things, everything that's seen. So Romans 8 and verse 31, uh, Mr. Weston quoted that in his sermon that was sent out for the Days of Unleavened Bread, seven warnings on the... Exodus root, Romans 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall we not with him also freely give us all things? How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And again, that is ta-panta, meaning the all. He is going to give us all things, the universe. And Hebrews 2, of course, is the one that gave the the clarification of King David's question in Psalm 8. And again, he tells us that we are, there's nothing excluded from what God is going to give us. Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 8, quoting from Psalm 8, You have put all things under subjection to his feet. For in that he put all, and the all again is Topanta, in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. So we have an awesome calling. God is going to... Why did God create the universe? He created the universe as an environment for human beings to learn about the Creator. And he says they are without excuse when you look at the creation in Romans 1 at verse 20. Even His eternal Godhead and power are revealed through the creation. 
and they are without excuse. So we look up at the heavens, and we realize God is going to give that to us as our inheritance. After the white throne judgment, everything will be purified, and everyone will either be in the kingdom of God or be ashes under his feet. God's holy days and festivals reveal God's master plan. And that master plan reveals our purpose and meaning of life. We're called to be sons and daughters of the Almighty, it says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. We are now sons and daughters of the Almighty. So you and I are a part of God's divine family, even now. He promises his salvation as a gift. We shall be saved by his life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Philippians 1.6, he said, He that has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God's not going to let you go. He's going to work with you right to the very end. But we need to be praying as King David did in Psalm 51 and verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew within me a steadfast or a right spirit. God is creating his masterpiece of creation. His perfect, righteous, holy, godly character in each and every one of us. But we need to ask him to do that, as King David did. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We saw in Romans 8, in verse 32, that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? God the Father designed his master plan of salvation before time began. He's now creating a royal divine family. We need to love one another as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. We must be conquerors, overcomers, persevering daily, overcoming with God's word, the Spirit's sword, with, with the Holy Spirit, and with Christ in us. One final scripture, Revelation 21 and verse 7. We look forward to the, the wedding with Christ, to be on the sea of glass and see our Father in heaven, and then come back and to fulfill our role as kings and priests. But we will inherit the earth. We will inherit salvation. We will inherit all things. Revelation 21 and verse 7. He who overcomes, that's what we're doing each and every day, overcoming. He overcoming, overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. It's God's royal family we will inherit the universe. So, brethren, let's live each day by faith and overcome every day with God's help and power and the faith of Christ. We are God's family. Let's fulfill our calling. And let's fulfill our special part in God's master plan.